Last week, we looked at solus Christus. It is by Christ alone that we have received this salvation. He did the work on the cross, and it is by that, our, our faith in that finished work that we have received the grace of our Lord God, according to the scriptures. Now, last week's sermon, Solus Christus, did not make it online. There was a problem in the recording, so I apologize for that. Uh, but then we come to our final doctrine that we are looking at today, and it is, it is the one that has become the cry of the Protestant Reformation. And you have probably continued to see this in Latin, even in other places, Soli Deo Gloria, or you might see it abbreviated SDG. If you ever see somebody sign their name and they put SDG after their name, that's, that's what it is that they're proclaiming. To God be the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. And the passage of scripture that we will be looking at today to understand that to God belongs all the glory is here in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. In honor of the word of God, would you please stand? Romans 11, 33 through 36. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord, as we come to the scriptures again today, as we reflect upon the things that we've talked about over these five Sundays, I pray that you continue to uh, teach us in our mind and in our heart the gloriousness of who you are, who who you are proclaimed to be according to your prophets and apostles who wrote these things down for us in the scriptures. Oh, what crude ways that we would know the majesty and the glory of God, that we might read them on words on a page. How how could we possibly fathom or capture the glory of who you are? But nonetheless, it is your word that you have proclaimed. This is the way that you have chosen to transmit your glory to us, that we might read in the ancient scriptures the ways that you delivered your people from slavery from sinfulness, from idolatry, and delivered them into a promised land. The ways that you delivered us from sin and death and enslavement to our passions and our flesh. And you have delivered us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, a message that was proclaimed and written down by your apostles so that we might come to it and read it and be reminded again and again. These things were written down for us, for our instruction, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 15. This is the way that you have chosen to proclaim your glory. Your word is power. Your word is might. Your word is above all other words. And so may we glory and praise in the opportunity to read this word together today and hear it proclaimed. In whatever way I can do this justice, I pray that you would anoint my lips to proclaim to your people the good news of the message of Jesus Christ that is to your glory now and forever. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this is Reformation Sunday, the the Sunday before October 31st, the uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And not just not just any anniversary, but this is the 500th anniversary, the, the quincentennial, as we remember 500 years from the day that it is considered the Protestant Reformation was launched. There were things that happened before, plenty of things that happened after, but that, that one day when the nail was put in the door of the church by Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of All Saints Church there in Wittenberg, where he was in Germany, where he was a professor there at the, at the school in which he had learned, where he had obtained his own doctrine. This is Dr. Martin Luther that we are talking about. And why that day, why that particular day, October 31st, would Martin Luther choose to nail his thesis to the door of the church? Well, it wasn't just any day. He specifically chose that day for a reason. The next day, November the 1st, was All Souls Day, or the way that we know it today is All Saints Day. Whenever you read something about the history of Halloween, uh, you read about how October 31st was that day before All Saints Day. And so it's, it's that day that all the evil spirits are, you know, and, and the evil spirits are out and they're trying to get the saints. And so if you wear masks, you dress up in costumes, you disguise yourself, and then the evil spirits won't get to you. That's where we have the custom of dressing up in costumes on Halloween. That's where that comes from. Well, on that particular All Souls Day, November 1st, there was a collection of relics, hundreds of relics, that were going to be displayed at the Catholic Church there in Wittenberg. These are the relics that, I mean, you still hear about to this day. Every once in a while you hear about a a tour of the Catholic Church in which they'll bring relics. They'll be like the finger bone of a certain saint or the the skull of John the Baptist, you know, something like that. And you'll hear about these relics and people will flock to that place where the relics are are touring and now it's made a stop at this particular church. Well, in this case, it was in Wittenberg. And there were going to be a a bunch of relics that people were going to travel from all over the place. They were going to take a pilgrimage and come there to Wittenberg to see these relics. They were going to bow the knee to these relics. They were going to genuflect you know, consider their own sinfulness and then the righteousness of the saints. And in the process of doing this, paying uh, 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 money to the Catholic Church, even for entrance to see these relics, the priests were telling them that they were going to take hundreds of years off of their purgatory sentence if they would come and pay money to see these relics. And Martin Luther decided something has got to be done about this. This is getting worse and worse. Already he was tortured in his mind uh, because of, of the works of John Tetzel. He was a German Dominican friar and preacher who had been selling indulgences for money. So it was people paying money to have their sins forgiven or to have the purgatory sentence of their loved ones reduced. Then there was Albert of Mainz. In 1514, he obtained the electorate of Mainz, and in 1518, at the age of 28, he was made a cardinal. That means he had two titles in the Catholic Church, and that was against the canon of law in the Catholic Church. So for him to hold two titles and hold them as young of an age as he was holding them, he paid a large sum of money 
in order to bribe the Catholic Church in order to uh, obtain those titles. And then he was paying off the bribe, he was paying off the debt that he had incurred to hold those positions by doing what John Tetzel was doing, and that was selling indulgences. And he was doing this to, to pay not only for his own position, but to also pay money to the church. Half of whatever he raised for selling these indulgences, he promised the Pope he would send half of whatever he gained back to the papacy there in Rome. And Pope Leo X, in his greed, thought that was a pretty good deal. So he agreed to let Albert of Mainz have his two titles if it meant that from this young, charismatic preacher, he would be able to gain all kinds of money for Rome himself. These were some of the things, the corruptions that were going on in the Catholic Church that prompted Luther to nail his theses to the door of the church. And as I mentioned to you at the start of this series four weeks ago, that Luther was not trying to start a protest toward reform. That's not what what he was trying to do. He didn't want it to be some some huge public thing in which there would be massive debates and fallout from the church. As a matter of fact, that grieved Luther to see that happen. He didn't really want to leave the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. He wanted there to be a return to the soundness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as he saw it in the Catholic Church at the present time, there was no gospel there. No one could go to the Catholic Church and expect to hear the saving message of Christ. It wasn't even being proclaimed. And so this was this needed to change. This was what prompted Luther to, to write these things out on paper and nail them to the door of the church, and then also to mail them. Uh, he mailed those theses to uh, other places as well, other teachers within the church. He wanted to start a discussion. Maybe my own brothers in this faith will be grieved by the things that have grieved me, and they will reflect upon the trueness of the scriptures that we have, which were written in Latin, which not everybody had. No one had the the Bible written in German. Luther began that process of translating the Bible into German. Nobody even had it in English. That was what William Tyndale did. He translated the Bible in English and then smuggled it into England, brought the Protestant Reformation there. And so even over the course of this here in the, in the 16th century, did we get the Bible translated into languages that we could actually read? Otherwise, you had to learn it in Latin or you had to learn it in Greek if you were part of the Greek Orthodox Church. So these were some of the reforms that were brought about by the Protestant Reformation. And it was on that day, October 31st, the day before All Souls Day, that Luther chose to nail those theses to the door of the church. R.C. Sproul, who has read far more of the Protestant reformers than I have read, far more church history than I can probably even hope to learn. The guy is a wealth, a treasure of knowledge uh, of, of church history. Sproul, who has a higher mind of the Reformation than I have, has said that the Protestant Reformation saved the gospel. Like, it was in jeopardy of being lost and forgotten and not even proclaimed in the church anymore until the men that we read about from the Reformation, like Luther and Calvin and Knox and Tyndale and many others, and it wasn't just these men, there were more, but, but these were the guys who were most prominent in this Reformation, who brought Reformation to their respective areas, countries, languages, 
peoples so that the gospel would be proclaimed. And if you were to interview any of those people today, I can tell you with certainty Martin Luther would not be thrilled by the fact that there is a denomination in his name. He would not like that. He wouldn't like that there are people who call themselves Lutherans. Nor would John Calvin be thrilled with the idea that the gospel is now called Calvinism in some circles. Calvin wouldn't like that. He wouldn't want the doctrines of grace named after him. Nor would William Tyndale expect his name on a school. Nor, or, or John Knox, who is considered to be the, the father of the Presbyterian church uh, there in Scotland and in England. These men would not want these titles. They gave up everything they had, just as the apostles did, for the proclamation of the gospel. They wanted no fame or acclaim of any of this. As a matter of fact, by the time Luther got to the end of his ministry, toward the end of his life, he said this, I did nothing. The word of God did it all. And it was the word of God that brought reform into Luther's own heart. And he realized reform needed to happen in the church. So little was the gospel proclaimed at the time that the Reformation happened 500 years ago that we would look at an event like this and see that the gospel was actually saved from the tyranny of wicked men. And it was the word of God that did it all, working in the hearts of the faithful who desired for God to be proclaimed as glorious, the the gospel of Christ to be proclaimed for salvation. This was what they wanted, not fame and acclaim or any of these other kinds of things. In fact, we speak of them so highly, but when you look at their lives, that's that's not what they ended up with in in the efforts that they put forward to proclaim the gospel. They uh, many of them were even driven out of their own churches. Calvin, who, who preached in the church in Geneva, uh, because he wouldn't let certain people come to the table to partake in communion, if he knew that they were living in sin, he would stand there at the communion table and say, Brother, I cannot let you partake in this. You are still in sin that you have not confessed before God. And the church hated. The church that hired him to preach there hated that he would do that. And so they drove him out of the church in Geneva. And after he spent three years, I think it was three years, in other places, and then Geneva realized what it was that they had done wrong, they actually appealed to Calvin to come back and preach there again. And so he did. He returned to his ministry there in Geneva. And what would you expect John Calvin to do? Now that he's being begged by his church to come back, I mean, now he can lay out the terms for his ministry. Okay, well, if you want me back, Here's what you got to do. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. This is one of my favorite stories in everything that I've read regarding the Protestant Reformation. Calvin came back to his pulpit there in Geneva, and he opened up the scrolls. He opened up the Bible, and he looked at his congregation, and he said, now where were we? And he picked up right where he left off. This is the word of God that these men loved and adored that it would be preached in the church of Jesus Christ, as it should be. That we're not listening to the whims and the whimsies of priests and and, uh, the Catholic Church or the Pope, but we are hearing God's word proclaimed. 
Michael Reeves, who is a professor, he's the pre- uh, president and professor of the Union School of Theology in the United Kingdom. He wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition in which he said that the Reformation was about three things. And here's the three things that he said the Protestant Reformation was about. So as we summarize these things today and we talk about all these things being done to the glory of God, what is it that I would want you to take away from these sermons over these five Sundays? Well, it's been a a five-part sermon spread over five weeks, so... You remember those five solas. Remember that it is by Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Remember those five points, these these five doctrines of salvation. But Michael Reeves says that the Reformation was about these three things. So remember these three, three things about the Reformation. Number one, the Reformation was about happiness. It was about happiness. Because remember some of the things that I've told you about Luther. Before he saw the light of Christ and the gospel through the pages of Scripture, he was tortured in that God hated him and his wrath was going to be poured out upon him for his sin. Luther was not happy reading the Bible. He was not happy about it. Because he was so vexed over his sin. And when he would read, as we talked about before in, in Romans one seventeen, when he would read about the glory of God, he thought the glory was the wrath of God. So there's nothing glorious to that for Luther. But Luther realized that the gospel is good news. The Lord showed him through the scriptures that that word gospel means good news. It is the good news that we can't do anything to merit salvation. And as hard as you try, you're only going to end up in misery. That's where Luther was. But when you rely upon Christ and know him as Savior and Lord, and that he has completed the work on the cross, and that all who believe in him would be saved, there is a a joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding, just as the Apostle Paul talked about with the Philippians. Luther, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Michael Reeves wrote this. He said, Luther was concerned with people's happiness. In fact, he would come to believe that he had found the secret of happiness. And that, at its heart, was what the Reformation was all about. Not moralizing, not self-improvement. It was a discovery of stunningly happy news. News that would transform millions of lives and change the world. So number one, the Reformation was about happiness. Number two, the Reformation was about freedom. Michael Reeves says, ultimately, the Reformation was a freedom movement. We are freed from the bondage of sin, set free in Christ Jesus. And we are free to worship God in a way that we could not have worshipped him before. And think about what the Catholic Church was doing. And they were imposing upon people you had to pay this amount of money, or you had to say these certain things, or you had to do these things for the Pope. You had to obey these laws and do these rules. I mean, there really wasn't any difference between what the Catholic Church was doing and what the Pharisees were doing to the Jews at the time that Jesus Christ showed up on the scene. They had taken the word or the law of God and they had added to it. They had changed it. They had imposed it upon the people and presented themselves as persons who were perfect and glorious, and you had to be just as good as us if you want to make it into heaven. 
But then when you read in Scripture and you read the seven woes in Matthew 23, those uh, uh, rebukes that Christ had issued against the Pharisees, you see they weren't righteous at all. It was on the surface, they were whitewashed tombs, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. This legalism, this attempting to follow law, this attempting to do more that the Pharisees had imposed upon the people or the priests had imposed upon the people, we we cannot attain to perfection in God. We're going to find ourselves constantly laboring and, and never getting there. So it was imprisonment. It was enslavement. Paul describes it in the book of Galatians as a yoke of slavery. It's like you're doing what an oxen is supposed to do. you got a big old yoke on you, and you're trying to plow a field, and you can't do it. It is a burden that no one was meant to bear. And so it is through the gospel that we've discovered freedom, freedom from that legalism that was imposed upon us because of our sin, freedom from having to obey every aspect of the law. Jesus Christ obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law and all that the prophets had spoken. And so in Christ, we can rest and there is freedom. So the Reformation was number one about happiness. Number two, it was about freedom. Number three, the Reformation was about the future. It's about happiness. It's about freedom. It's about the future. How is the Reformation about the future? Well, now you look to the future with joy and expectation and hope, knowing that since we find joy and happiness in the gospel, since we've been set free from sin and having to follow the law, now we have a future and a hope in Christ Jesus, knowing that we will be part of his glorious kingdom, that there is nothing on this earth that can bring us such happiness and freedom. It is only in Christ, and it is that glorious that glorious kingdom where that happiness and freedom are seen perfectly. And we will enjoy that and be in that forever. A team of scholars at Westminster, England in the 1640s wrote these words. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is beautiful God is good, he is kind, and he is generous. Luther realized that God is not someone to be feared or hated. He is someone to be enjoyed. And Luther looked forward to a future with him forever in glory. And that's where we come to in our uh, our series today. It is the glory of God. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. My friends, I've been a pastor. As far as my ordination goes, I have been a pastor for seven years. August, 7, uh, August 15th of, uh, of 2010 was when I was ordained. So I've been a pastor for seven years. And I'm still amazed day after day when I come to the scriptures and I see the word of God proclaim the depth that is here. And every time I read it and every time I study it, there are things that blow my mind today that that had not yet grasped my heart the day before. And I am studying and reading from men who have been pastors for 30, 40, 50 years or more. And you know what they're saying? The same thing. 
Every day I come to the scriptures and God is showing himself new and fresh to me today that I didn't see him yesterday. I never come to the end of studying the word of God. And that, that's, not, that's not hopeless for me. That's hopeful. You know, I'm not looking at men who are, who've been studying the scriptures for 60 years and are, and are going, boy, I just, I just can't, I can't get to the end of this. I see new things and then I'm sitting here going, well, if you can't figure it out in 60 years, how am I supposed to figure this out? No, in, in fact, I look at this very hopefully uh, to see that I'm, not, I'm never going to get bored with this. As long as I set Christ before me and God and his glory are the things that I desire to attain, then I'm going to see new and great things in this word, God's word, that I didn't see yesterday, that I see more tomorrow, and that makes me hope for and long all the more for this kingdom where we will be glorifying God forever. I mean, can you fathom forever? Can you grasp that? You know, and I tell you that if you look at heaven forever and you, and you see the, the priority of heaven, that was the word that, that Julie used with our kids this morning, priority. When you see that the priority of heaven is glorifying God for all eternity, and you see that as the priority of heaven, and you go, well, that doesn't sound all that interesting to me. I tell you to question your faith. If you don't think that it is glorious that you will be able to celebrate God for all eternity and be in his presence forever, and perhaps the scriptures have, have become even lackluster to you. They're not interesting anymore. They're words on a page it is a chore for you to have to open your Bible and read it. It's a chore to wake up and come to church on a Sunday morning. It is a, it is a chore to have to go to Bible study. If that's where you are, I must caution you, you are on the verge of having a dead faith if your faith is not dead already. And would you be one who would appear before God in glory on the day of judgment and Jesus said, Jesus would say to you, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, for I never knew you? Because you did not glorify in the presence of God, in the present, how would you ever find joy in his presence for eternity? He would not let you into that access. He would dismiss you from his presence forever. If we did not glorify God in this life, we won't glorify in him in the next either. So appreciate and know his presence now. Be on your knees before God and pray, God, I want to know you. I want to hear your voice in the pages of Scripture. I want to hear you speaking to me. There's another quote from Luther. He said, let the man who would hear God speak read the Holy Scriptures. That's how we hear God speak to us. And then as Julie shared with the kids this morning, we speak to God through prayer. It is a wonderful thing to, that, that, that we know that we have access to God, to his throne room, through Bible study and prayer because of what Christ has done, bridging the gap that it existed between us and God because of our sin. But it is the cross of Christ that makes us able to cross that gap into the presence of God. The most wonderful glorious thing that you will do in your Christian walk while you are here on this earth 
the most amazing thing that you can do as a Christian right now is go to church. That really is the most important thing for you to do as a Christian. Why is that the most important? Why not Bible study and prayer? Oh, those things are definitely absolutely important. Personal Bible study, personal prayer, personal devotions, personal reflection, personal repentance, all of those things are absolutely important for you to do. But nothing is more important than church. Why is that more important? Because this right here, what we're doing on Sunday morning when we gather, this is heaven practice. This is the kind of worship that we will be doing in heaven. You won't worship by yourself in heaven. You will be worshiping together with all the saints, God in glory forever in heaven. So get used to the person you're sitting next to right now. If you desire for them to be with you forever in glory, you will be celebrating with them forever in glory. And this, is, this was done in the Old Testament one way. It became something else in the New Testament, but still done the same way. I uh, was listening to a pair of sermons this past week, one sermon from Sinclair Ferguson, the other one from Douglas Wilson. They both preached at the 2003 Ligonier Conference, and they preached on the glory of God, of knowing God in his glory, how we will experience this in this life in practice for how we will experience God in his presence and glory forever in heaven. And basically summarizing these two great preachers' sermons into, uh, into this. So it's kind of like I'm taking both sermons and, and putting them together here. There are three offerings that we see exercised in the Old Testament, and we do those same offerings the same way in the church today. So the offerings that God had commanded his people, Israel, to lift up before him in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. They were the guilt offering, the ascension offering, which is commonly translated the burnt offering, and then the peace offering. The guilt offering made the worshiper fit to enter the presence of God. First, he had to make an offering to atone for his sins, and so then come into the presence of God. The ascension offering or what was called the burnt offering, was where the worshiper ascended into the presence of God. So this burnt offering that was made on the altar, the smoke would rise up. And in a sense, the spirit of that person would rise up into the presence of God. That was what was exhibited by the ascension offering. And then finally, third, there was the peace offering. And God received the worshiper. In the peace offering, it was to show that God had received. What the worshiper had offered up in his guilt offering and in his ascension offering and would now fellowship with him in a common meal. So the sacrifice that was offered would be burned on the altar, but then the person offering that sacrifice would also eat a portion of it themselves and the priest would eat a portion of it. And so this was to show fellowship in a fellowship meal with God. And these were the offerings that Israel was commanded to lift up. On Thursday evening, as we're going through our Bible study in 2 Kings right now, we're at the, at the place where King Hezekiah has issued reform in Israel. Hezekiah himself, he brought reform to Israel. Because after so many wicked kings that had been over the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they had 
disobeyed the law of God. They had forgotten the law of God. They weren't paying attention to that law anymore. They were worshiping false gods. Some of them, like King Ahaz, even offering up his own son as a sacrifice to a false god. This was the kind of evil that was going on in Israel and in Judah. And then along comes Hezekiah, the most righteous king that Judah had ever had up to that point, and he brought reform to the, the, the kingdom of Judah. That temple worship would resume in the temple only. It wasn't going to be up on the high places anymore. To worship God, you had to worship God in the place where God said, I am to be worshipped, as he talked about in Deuteronomy 12. And that was the temple there on Mount Moriah. So all the high places were torn down. Worship was only here in the temple. And Hezekiah reinstated those three sacrifices. That in order for the people of Israel to be made right with God, they had to offer a guilt offering, the ascension offering, and the peace offering. These reforms are, and these offerings are talked about in 2 Chronicles 29, verses 20 through 36. So that's where we've been in our study in 2 Kings. But in the same way that these offerings were practiced in Israel and then reinstated also in the temple, so we practice those same things in the church. Now, of course, the sacrifice of animals has been done away with. We read about that in the book of Hebrews, that Christ, with his blood offering, has paid a price that no animal sacrifice is ever going to be able to amount to. Christ paid once for all by his blood the sins of mankind. We have access to God by his atoning sacrifice. So he's taken care of us having to shed blood to make a guilt offering before God. Christ has done that. But we as the people of God, when we gather together and we worship on a Sunday morning, we're still lifting up guilt offerings, ascension offerings, and peace offerings. Guilt offerings together as a congregation, we confess our sin before God and asked to be made holy. Did you notice that we did that this morning with that reading out of hymn number 66, the call and response? What we were confessing before God was we were sinful and we wanted to walk the way of holiness. So God, show us the way of holiness. That's that's our guilt offering. That's what we do as a church, as a congregation together on Sundays. Then there was the ascension offering. What What was the ascension offering? The ascension offering was... Our voices joined together and lifting up praises to our Lord God that he would, he would hear us all together in one voice praising his name. That's our ascension offering. Paul talks about doing this together as a church regularly in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3 that we would sing together, make melody in our hearts to God singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And this is our ascension offering. And then thirdly, there's the peace offering. This is to show that God has received the worshiper and would fellowship with him in a common meal. Now, we don't necessarily do this every single Sunday, but we do this regularly. And what is that? What is that meal that we fellowship with Christ in? But communion, the Lord's Supper that we'll partake in together next week. And we as a church, we all gather at this table and we break bread and we drink the cup, symbolizing the broken body that was broken for our sins, the blood that was shed for our sins, so that in Christ we know that our sins are forgiven. 
and we eat these things. We eat the bread that represents his body. We drink the cup that represents his blood so that we might be reminded we should be filled up with Christ. From the very core of our being out, we are filled with God. This is what Jesus meant in John 6 when he said that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. He wasn't telling believers that they needed to become cannibals. He was telling us that we needed to be filled up with Christ from the inside out, from the bottom of the glass all the way to the top. You don't fill the glass from the top of the glass down. You don't have water there on the surface, an empty space in the bottom. If you're going to fill the glass, it starts from the bottom up. And so it is the same with you, who is the believer in Christ. You must be filled from the very core, from the very inside, from the deepest recesses of yourself outward. Your faith cannot be something that you show on the outside, lest you be a glass trying to fill itself from the top down. It has to be Christ in the very center, and then he will show even on the outside. We do this together as the body of believers. This is, it's the most important thing that you do in your Christian walk is attending church, that we practice praising God in one chorus, in one voice, which we're all going to do together for all eternity. And my role as the preacher in proclaiming the word of God, this is all in preparation for that as well. When we will hear the actual voice of God forever? You're not, I mean, as, as much as I get praised for my radio sounding voice, my voice is nothing. I mean, I'm dust. I'm barely an echo on the wind compared to the voice of God. And we would be together in glory forever, just glorifying God. The depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. But we're promised this in 1 John 3, 2, that we will see him as he is because we will be made to be like him. So what you don't see of God now, you will see clearly when we get to the other side, when our lowly bodies are made to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And then we will be able to stand in his presence forever, just as he is. We're going to talk about these things very soon as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians and we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we read about those very things. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Again, the salvation that you're given in Christ, you don't merit. You don't do something to attain. You don't do something to achieve. It's given to you by the grace of God as a gift. Who has known the mind of God that you can tell him what you deserve, or what you have done, that God would owe you something. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. I cannot emphasize this enough. You do nothing to earn your place before God. Christ paid your admission. You don't do it. No one will stand in the presence of God saying, Hey, you owe me eternity because I prayed a prayer when I was 12. You can't do that. 
You owe me heaven because I participated in the Lord's Supper. You owe me eternal life with you because I was baptized. You told me I had to get baptized, so I was baptized, and now you owe me heaven. No. The things that you do that are a reflection of a Christian life, the things a Christian should do, they show that you're saved, but they're not the things that save you. Your works don't save you. They are the evidence of the salvation that you've been given. A great illustration that, uh, that Raymond shared with me this morning. Just because you chop wood doesn't make you a lumberjack. But a lumberjack will chop wood. So if you call yourself a lumberjack, you should be out there chopping trees down. But just because you're out there swinging an axe at a tree doesn't mean that you're a lumberjack. So just because you've been baptized or participated in the Lord's Supper or prayed and asked God to forgive you of your sins, just because you have been baptized, just because you were a regular attender of church does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is because Christ has made you a Christian. And then you do those things because you're a Christian. They don't earn your salvation. They are an evidence of your salvation. You have done nothing for God. You have given nothing to him that he owes you anything. And if you think that you can or you think that you have, you make less of God and much of yourself. And no one gets to heaven proclaiming their own glory. We get to heaven proclaiming God's glory, which we do for all eternity. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Revelation 1. Four first chapters that I mentioned to you last week where we see the divinity of Christ proclaimed most prominently in those four first chapters. And in all four first chapters, it says that all things have been created for him. They are all to his glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done. And so I put to you adults now, what Julie put to the kids this morning, what are you doing to proclaim the glory of God with your whole life? Now, I don't ask you that question to leave it to you to have to come up with an answer, for the answer to that question is actually in the very next verses here in Romans. Look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Present your whole bodies as a living sacrifice to God, abstaining from sexual immorality, abstaining from theft and lying and stealing and malice and wrath and slander, putting others down, complaining and arguing, 
have nothing to do with these things, but rather submit yourselves to God as a holy and living sacrifice unto the Lord. This is your spiritual worship. Practicing spiritually together as a church what we will do for all eternity in the presence of God. To God be the glory, great things he has done. This coming Tuesday, I consider to be the most significant date of remembrance in my lifetime. There are many great days that I have experienced in my lifetime. The day I was married, the day that I held my son in my arms for the first time, the day that I was saved. I can't tell you exactly what date that is, but I sure praise God for that day that I was saved, that I turned from sin and lawlessness and worshiped God as holy and desired to live in his righteousness the date that I already mentioned to you that I was ordained to become a minister. There were all all these significant dates in my life, but as far as a day of remembrance goes, a day that everybody looks at and appreciates and enjoys what was done on that day, there's probably been no other significant day of remembrance than October 31st of 2017, when we'll remember 500 days or 500 years from that day when a monk named Martin Luther was convicted in his heart that the church had left the gospel and needed to return. And we've we've explored the same things as a church. Not that I believe that First Southern Baptist Church has ever left the gospel. In the 60-plus year history of this church, as I look over it, I've I've not seen an occasion, at least, when when I would be able to say that, oh, the church wasn't teaching the gospel here. I think that this church, for the most part, has been very faithful to the scriptures and having the word of God proclaimed. But there have been occasions when it has been necessary for us as a church to look at what we are doing and look at what Jesus says the church is supposed to be and be sure that we're doing things according to what Jesus said and not according to what we want the church to be. That's Reformation. And we still explore that and do that even now. And there are ways in which the church, even in America, desperately needs reformation. And so these five principles of a doctrine of salvation that we've studied over these last five weeks, remember them. Teach them to your children. and Stand firm on the truth of God's word. All to his glory and honor. Amen.